Ignition. T minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Chronicle Podcast. This podcast here exclusively looks at European horror cinema and in season four I'm joined by a guest to do so. Now the last two episodes have been me freeballing and being out there on the whims doing stuff that I wanted to do, uh, primarily because of uh, Podcasts Under the Stairs summer series content, and meant that everyone was a bit squeezed for time, including myself. But I did promise that I would return with a guest, and I'm here to fulfil said promise to you guys right now. Joining me on this episode is the host of the Psychosemantic podcast and one half of the VD Clinic. He is a all-round great guy who you will have heard of on podcasts under the stairs, whether it's on the summer series or Russian roulette franchise retros. My guest this time is Mr. Derm Wilson. How's it going? <laughs> I am doing quite well, sir. How are you? I am very, very well. I like this musical introduction. <laughs> I've had the lullaby from this movie stuck in my head all day. It will be. It gets right in there and then you have to deal with it for, for the rest of the time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, this is a great choice. So you, you've chose Pan's Labyrinth, which, I mean, is by far the classiest film we've discussed on Chronicle, not because we aim for trashy movies, it's just this one received a ton of accolades, a shitloads of um, awards, and kind of rightly so. Now, I know there are people out there that are uh, a faction of the internet that I believe you call the horror police, who will yes. be right now putting up tape around their review saying nothing to listen to here, um, because they consider the movie not a horror movie which is silly, but each to their own opinions. For the purposes of this recording and just in general, I definitely class it a horror movie, and I know you are as well, which is why we're here doing it. So we'll just take the sting out of that argument before it drops on my lap. I suppose before we get into ta uh, kind of tackling the movie, um, a little bit more about how you've come to this selection then. When would you have first seen Pan's Labyrinth? Is this a when it came out movie or is this a kind of further down the road as Del Toro himself became more prominent a figure in filmmaking that you went back and checked some of the back catalogue out? I rented this pretty much as soon as it came out mm. uh, for for rental. Uh, I didn't, I you know, obviously Del Toro was lesser known in, two, was it 2007 when this came out? Probably on uh, rental things. I know it came out theatrically in 2006. It came out theatrically 2006. I would have thought... 2007 made sense because we would still been in that time period where it took about what was it six to six to maybe ten months 
foreign movie to make its way out there and this is a foreign language one as well which just adds like additional barriers which are not needed so if I was to guess I would have said 2007 made sense I've got a vague me I have a very it's not even a vague memory I have a strong memory of seeing this movie on VHS no sorry on DVD um, in 2006 at Christmas time because my new girlfriend, now my wife, <laughs> um, had rented this out and brought this up to me as a this will cheer you up kind of <laughs> gift. Um, so I've got the, that's the first time I saw the movie. So and that's the UK. I would have thought it would have been out in the UK before the USA. So I think 2007 is a safe bet. I'll say 2007, 2008. It was pretty early on because I, I this movie ticks so many of my boxes. Mm. Uh, when when I do foreign language film, I gravitate a lot towards Spanish films because that's the. It's an. It, I'm in America, so we're lucky if we know any of any other language besides English. Yeah. And but I took Spanish in school, mm. and I have more Spanish friends than I have uh, of any other language. Yeah, yeah. So I, I like I like to go towards that because I end up watching more of the movie and less of the subtitles. Mm -hmm. Which, But, you know, we've talked about many different types of films. Uh, uh, I'm not an anti-subtitle person, I guess I should say. Yeah, I um, think that's fair. I think there are a lot of people out there that... And I, I mean, there's the the days of me raging against the machine on this one are are, are long gone. <laughs> if you don't like subtitles, okay, <laughs> you, you're missing I, out on a lot. But you're yeah. you are, but at the same time, like why put yourself through an experience that you yourself would find miserable just to watch a movie that everyone else is telling you is great? So I live in Even hope. Though. Yeah, go, go ahead. I, I love. Well, I live in hope that there is one day that that'll just not be a thing. I think one day we'll get to a point with technology being the way it is. I think one day there will be almost like a UN style interpreter that you put in your ear, and what you hear is the English language. It's not dubbed. It just makes it like you understand the language. And I think I think that's that's what I. Like, I don't know if you've ever heard my I have a dream speech, Darren, but that's my I have a dream speech. Um, so, yeah, that's I, I think we're heading that way. But it's come a long way. It really has. And I think Del Toro is partly responsible for that just because of his prominence and his meteoric rise to fame. I mean, we're only talking about, what, two, three years removed from him having movie of the year um, and the Oscars. He got uh, best film. Um, but then the following year, um, it went to uh, oh, uh, Bong Joon-ho for Parasite, which another foreign language movie. So even though Del Toro's was an English language movie, the fact that that had you know we'd made that move to this is a subtitled movie, and then people seemed genuinely interested in checking out. I know some people didn't. Uh, some people were upset, but there seemed to be a move where people were. Uh, at least interested to check out more kind of South Korean cinema, I thought was a positive step, so to speak. It's also worth saying, as dialogue goes, this is not a hugely dialogue-heavy movie. So I think you can probably sit down and watch this. 
In fact, you could watch this without the subtitles on, even in the foreign language, you would still follow the story pretty well. It's not a... You know, they're not sitting down and trying to, like, philosophise the the concept of existence or anything like that in this movie. It is a lot of kind of run-of-the-mill fairy tale conversations that if you grew up with kind of scary stories and fairy tales, you probably know already. Exactly. There's so so much reference, and this is the thing that we share. Yeah, we Well, we've talked about quite a few Del Toro movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, we both appreciate the the background to you know fascist franco spain and love quite it, a few yeah. movies that we've talked about yeah yeah absolutely as a time period in a setting i think it is hugely fascinating i think it's also woefully underused in movies like the, the amount of kind of if you want if you want to put like it's almost like the hollywood trope is if you want to set a movie in a period of uncertainty and disquiet and like the you know the, the Germans are occupying some country somewhere like in the background and that's how you do it um, I love the fact that this one because it's such a fertile ground it's such an interesting like dictatorship as well the, the way it was handled because um, I, I mean for all intents and purposes it almost mirrors Italy uh, with Mussolini but it, you know Franco was not an absolute fucking nut job like Mussolini he was a lot more calculating and that made him a lot more dangerous um, but yeah there's a time period in a set and I think it's it's and Del Toro clearly has a fascination with it because this is what the th- second or third movie that's been set against the backdrop of the the kind of the, the, the Spanish Civil War so kind of yeah, interesting. Devil's, was Devil's Backbone, right? Yeah, is the, the other prominent one, and I was trying to remember, Kronos is set much later, um, and I... No, Hellboy's not. Hellboy's set during the... Well, it's modern times, but the flashback thing's Nazi Germany, so... So even he used it, but I think that was in the comics. So... And I can't, <laughs> yeah. I can't remember where... Uh, Shape of Water's... That's not. Uh, that's America that's a, anyway, that's isn't in it? America, but yeah. it's in that time period. Right? Yeah, yeah. So he he has a fascination with the, specifically the time period, and you can argue I mean, even Nightmare Alley um, has a very kind of it's like a twenties thirties vibe uh, and the the way it looks, the way it feels, and all that. I think he just has a fascination with that era, um, like like stylistically, definitely um, from a, a, a point of view of kind of costume design as well. He just thinks that way. That's he's, that's obviously fertile ground for him to play in. But also gives him it gives us villainy in this movie in the best possible way um, because you can have all the weird shit that's going on with the fairy tale, whether you choose to believe it or not. But the bottom line is that the the real monsters in this movie are men. <laughs> like so and that in themselves that is terrifying. So at least the, 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 the violence that men wrought is 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 you know more harmful um on grander scales of magnitude than anything that could possibly happen at the hands of one of these creatures. So I think that's I think that's kinda cool as well. So on that first view though, were you like, this is great? Or were you kind of like, a, oh, this is kind of cool, you know, give it a little bit of time to breathe and then maybe come back and check it out somewhere down the road? I immediately fell in love with it. Yep. And uh, I think at least the last five, maybe ten years, I watch it at least once a year. Nice, nice. I I'm, realized I'm... when I sat down to watch it, I was like, you know what? 
it's been too long. It's yeah. always been too long whenever I sit down to watch it. So I've watched this a ton in the last couple of years, um, primarily for summer series. <laughs> Just, it was see, my number one that year. It was, and rightly Pissed so. Pissed off a few horror police, but you know yeah. what. I believe it is also, and I need to get my hands on this, I believe it did finally make its way to, to kind of 4K UHD, and this is the sort of movie that you really want in that. So I'm going to need to, to get that sorted for sure, just so I can, I don't know, whack myself blind watching it. Um, right, that's our that's our setup here. <laughs> Me wanking myself blind, apparently. Um, we're going to take a short break. You're going to hear the promo for the movie. When we return, we're going to be discussing it. Uh, I don't think we're going to be bringing any great revelations to, to to our review here, but what we are hopefully going to be able to do is impart why we think it is as incredible as we have in this introduction. So we're going to be back, myself and Dern, right after this. In a dark time, when hope was bleak, there lived a young girl whose only escape was in a legend that wanted her back. The legend speaks of the lost soul of a princess from another world who will one day be reborn. There will be signs that mark her return. There will be secrets that reveal her destiny. There will be a journey that will make you believe. Welcome back, ladies and gents. So, you've just heard the trailer for Pan's Labyrinth from 2006. Uh, this is written and directed by Guillermo del Toro. The movie itself stars a lot of Spanish people. And Doug Jones. <laughs> it's not Spanish. Um, I'm going to skip the names because I, I don't want to hurt my head. Uh, plus, I've had a couple of drinks and that's going to be difficult even with... A sober tongue. Um, Lopez, Maribel Verdu, there we go. Ivana Baquero, yep. Doug Jones, Dougie Jones, <laughs> Ad Adriana Gill, 
And Alex Angulo. I will take all of that and say, well done, sir. Well done. Um, the synopsis for this one is in the Balanglis Spain of 1944, the bookish young stepdaughter of a sadistic army officer escapes into an eerie but captivating fantasy world. So, essentially just doing a very quick cliff notes of the the kind of plot here, as laid out uh, kind of here, we are, we are following a young girl and her mother who is pregnant by her new husband, who is this horrible, horrible, horrible uh, army officer, essentially, the commander. Um, at an outpost in the mansion it lives in. She's moving in with them and she's moving with her mum. Um, her mum, I don't think he's it's ever really portrayed that she's necessarily in love with the guy, but she sees this as a means to protect herself and her daughter. So this is this is what they're doing. As she arrives at this, this place, there is a kind of almost enchanted garden uh, at the side and she comes across a character called uh, the Fawn, um, who believes that she is uh, a foretold um, missing princess um, from a, a, a dreamlike fairy world that lives alongside her own. And to prove that she is who he thinks she is, she must complete a few tasks in order to prove that she is the the princess and can return and take her place upon the throne of this kingdom of enchantment. Uh, meanwhile, while all this is happening, um, there is a resistance cell who may have a foothold in this uh, colonel's household. Um, and they are plotting a raid upon this to kind of overthrow their presence in the area. And that's probably a good setup here. Ultimately, goes a lot of, for for a movie that is as fantastical as it is. It, it does follow a very conventional. It ends up where you think it's going to end up. Essentially, there's it doesn't like Guillermo del Toro understands his audience and understands fairy tales enough that he doesn't try and pull a fast one here. You get, you get what you want. It is like. Unbelievably dark, though. <laughs> like, like, it's like, there's a of nightmares at times. Specifically through the creature design, but more importantly, the aforementioned violence by the, the, the you know, the commander himself and his officers is kind of terrifying. Um, so, so let's, let's get into this, right? Let's, let's get into this one here. Because this one does feel very much like a kind of, a Grimm's Fairy Tales sort of story that definitely exists in that world of kind of like proper childlike fantasy and there is a ton there's a ton of symbolism and imagery right through this movie specifically about you know the the idea of adolescence into adulthood um and the kind of the, the loss of that innocence we have as we grow out from being a child into an adult and also, like I said before, one of the big talking points here is as gnarly as things get in the fantasy world, it is against a backdrop of sheer fascism and brutality, which when it does appear on the screen is so fucking jarring, um, it kind of leaves you shocked and cold. Um, talking about like Pan's Labyrinth, if you... When, when thinking about the, the actual movie itself, 
right? Like as a whole product. It's difficult to work out who originally the audience, on a mainstream level anyway, might be for this movie because of like the the, the kind of almost never-ending story-esque aspect of the fantasy world. But the fact that it's so rooted in the horrific, like levels of actual terror as well, you know, like I don't know how quick you would be showing your kids it, if you know what I mean. I've been pretty loose in the the movies that I let my kid watch. Yeah, and you like me that way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's plenty of stuff. I was like, why is this fucking rated R? Fuck yeah, <laughs> these heard me say worse shit and stuff like that. But I I haven't thought. Well, <laughs> what was the movie that I said last time uh, that I pretended that I want let him watch? I don't know. That would be Mark or some shit it like for that. A second. Yeah, it was that uh, <laughs> that fuck. Anyway. I think it was that German movie from the summer series. Oh, well, uh, well, uh, uh, oh God damn it. Uh, when the guy gets stranded with the weird people. Calvair. Calvair. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Not German. <laughs> Calvair, it's a famous like, it's, German word, Calvair. Calvair's a fairy tale movie as well, though. Which is like, yeah. <laughs> must, something just weird going on around in the kind of mid to, to like mid. 2000s. It's just like something very, 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 very fucking strange. <laughs> People were trying to escape what they thought was going to be the soon-ending American war on terror. Possibly. And... Um, you know, in hindsight now, why did we ever think it was going to finish so quick? <laughs> <laughs> right. And so, yeah, with the backdrop of fascism and the fairy tales and there's so much more detail mm-hmm. in the fairy tale world that she escapes into and then you come into the somehow arguably more brutal world of real life with sparse empty rooms although i did see and i did notice a few this last time around that del toro had the art department put um a fawn's head over every doorway mm-hmm. and on the woodwork of like the banisters and shit. And, but that other than that, he purposefully made everything in the regular world, just kind of empty and reduced the color palette. And even the monsters in this represent, represent, you know, like the, I don't know how far ahead we, we want to go, but you know, you can, like, you can jump as far as like you can go ahead, behind, whichever way you want in a chronicle review. You know, the pale the pale man in the the crimson room is. Uh, I know. I think I definitely heard Del Toro say that he could easily be the captain or the priest sharing his table. Mm-hmm because he loves playing around with the uh, theme of authority and disobedience. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ophelia just, yeah, she is disobedience. I mean, she doesn't even uh, listen to the fawn no. in that part, <laughs> which I get annoyed every time. I'm like, why, why? Well, I guess you're starving because the dickhead captain is, you know, 
but it's like just don't eat the fucking grape. Yeah, like you just till you get out the room. Like it's like there's not like the the room is like a desert or something. Just don't eat the food on the table. But there is that idea of as soon as you tell a kid not to do something, well, it's the same with adults. Don't push the red button, and then all 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 your heads like what does the red button do? Maybe we should push the red button. I really want to push that red button. As adults, I think we get better control of of understanding what a repercussion actually is. But to a kid, I don't think they, they fully grab, grasp that as well. Um, I think it becomes a kind of, oh, you know, what's the worst that could happen? Or they don't, their brains aren't designed, their brains are designed to live in the moment. Um, they, they haven't pressed enough buttons. Yeah. <laughs> and found and, out what happens. But like, I feel like, uh, like, like like you said before, she she's disobedient on, on well, she's a child on, like, on all levels. She's she's someone that lives in her own fantasies, lives in her own brain, but also doesn't really want to not even follow the rules. She's in a horrible position, right? She's like she's got this stepdad who she clearly doesn't like, but her mum is and her mum like seems to tolerate a lot from that side because she herself is scared. Um, not only of this man, but the the security that they may lose if they're leaving them. So, I I like that aspect because it's very grown up. Like you have adults behaving like adults in this movie, which I know might seem strange, but from a child's perspective, it's even kind of is is put forward that way. The way she sees the adults behaving are recognisable to us, but through a different prism. Um, which I think is very clever filmmaking. And then you have the world through the eyes of a child, which everything is wonder and everything is mystery and everything is intrigue and like sometimes what is clear and obvious danger is not perceived as danger and then other things are rationally dangerous when they're not. Um, I think Del Toro manages to capture all of that. For, for a guy as old as he is, I think he still has the ability to capture the the childlike wonder of of kind of fantasy horror and danger. Unlike few directors, few directors really seem to be able to get there. Like if Stephen King, like wrote Pan's Labyrinth, there'd be a child orgy in the middle of it. You know, it's what kids do. Um, but you know, like. Like Del Toro, it's much more. It's softer, but that softness is always juxtaposed with some really gnarly stuff. Like whether it's the the giant frog that she needs to to face down, or the the pale man who I mean, to this day is one of the best designed monsters of of all times. Absolutely terrifying, and the the kind of warning in advance of listen, whatever you do. Just don't eat the food, and the the repercussions of that are all the, the the fairies being destroyed and eaten and torn apart and mutilated in front of her as the repercussion. But you never really see her being upset by that. Like she doesn't really yeah, shed she a tear for the fairies herself. dying. Nope. <laughs> it's just like, well, it didn't happen to me. I got out, so I'm fine. Um, and that to me is just another really interesting element to it. Um, and as the movie goes along, like I said before, I think the fact that we get to see things from a child's level, and you see, and there are times here, not all the time, I've got to stress that, where our stepdad isn't being unreasonable what he's asking. You know what I mean? 
like as an adult, I've I've had that sense where I'm like, that be on your best behaviour when these guests arrive. You know what I mean? Like I I I, I know I've said it. I've not then bludgeoned the man with a bottle afterwards, but um, you know what I mean? I'd, like I like I see those things and I'm like, yeah, I would get really annoyed if my, I, I expressly told my daughter not to misbehave when people were visiting, and the first thing she fucking did was like. <laughs> And also the idea of how the dress gets dirty, like, is totally what a kid would make up. Oh, right. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a total kid. Like, I love that aspect of the movie being like, yeah, this is exactly what I can. <laughs> like, but we're actually going to see the thing. The thing, like, you know, well, a squirrel came in the room and stole my, stole my homework. <laughs> um, in the case of this one, like, the, the whole kind of, the, the whole um, the whole setup with the frog is, is, is surprisingly well done. Um, and let me ask you a question then as we're jumping around here is this all in our head man because I don't think it is right I, I genuinely think this is a, this, this, the beauty of the fairy tale is like the the world that the world the fantasy world that she's always wanted to escape to is part of the reason she's been led here to escape to it like all the fates have led her to that's how prophecy works the fates all lead to one place and then it, it rolls from there but I've read things where you know people are like oh no it's like all in her imagination it's her fantasy and it kind of overtakes her and I never got that to me it just it, it never felt neat especially in a world that Guillermo del Toro created yep yep there's no way that it's all in her head it would be such a cop out for him so yeah. I'm glad that I'm glad that we're on the same page. I was I was wondering if you had like an alternative take there on it. Um, let's talk. Um, we've obviously we've spoken a little bit about her behaviour. Talked a little bit about the family setup. Let's talk about the creature design here. It's like jaw droppingly good. I mean, like in terms of like none of the fantasy here that we see feels like things we've really necessarily seen before. And I mentioned in a kind of almost blasey, flippant way, the never-ending story, but I know you're in or around my age. Um, but that was our that was our kind of temple fairy tale story. I know there's movies like Legend and Dark Crystal and all the rest, but everyone saw the never-ending story and everyone remembers everything in the never-ending story. Um, all the various things we come across, all the, all the entities. You, you remember those and... In a lot of respects, a lot of movies that come after that kind of play upon the same sorts of things, same sorts of ideas of gatekeepers and animals, etc. And then I see Pan's Labyrinth and I, I don't see... I've never seen the representation of a kind of Toad King done this way. Uh, the, the Pale Man, I've never seen anything like that done in a movie before. Um, or even the Lathorn has a particular look about him that... I just don't think I've ever seen anything like that before. Even, and I'm, this is me mentioning Legend before, but the the, the idea that looks very, very different. Well, what's your views on this one? Is, is this, like, exceptional in the idea of creature design, considering that a lot of this is directly from the brain of one Mr. Del Toro? And it's, it's so cool to see his sketches of... Mm -hmm. So, you know, he has so much fun with the creation of this stuff and being so involved in not really seeming like a pushy way. Yeah. But just I have in a yeah, in a non douchebag kind of way, he has a vision for how everything is. Yeah. And he's flexible, though, because the the pale man, that, that was a developing idea. And mm -hmm. he just 
took away the face. Uh, what, what was it? He said it looked like the underside of a manta ray. Yeah. It always freaked him the fuck out. So, and then they expanded from that. And then with the, I mean, Doug Jones, I'm sure had brought a, I mean, he's, he's so good in all of it. He, he really is. Like, I think sometimes people, like, well, he wears a costume and what like, but the presence, the, he is that character. And that's what's terrifying about it. He does, and all the little things he does in each of his characters. You know, mm. like, I, I don't know if you've seen Star Trek Discovery. Oh, no, not yet. No. He he plays a character. I forget the name of the being that he is. But there's just these physical mannerisms that are so natural that you, that I forget, you know, like the way he walks and the way he holds his arms mm -hmm. when he walks is always very specific to that character. Or shambling, I mean, when he's the white uh, the pale man yeah he's he walks like that creature i don't really even know how to how to say it otherwise yeah uh, but uh going back to the the creature design and the practical effects and things it's just uh, so much care and creativity is is put in into this mm -hmm. uh, you know, the fawn looks like it would sound like creaking wood when it moves like it does yeah yes yes Oh, well, that's another thing, the sound design that goes along with that. Like, the creatures... There's one thing about having a specific visual idea, but marrying up a sound design that seems to fit with that is is crazy. Like, that, that it's the attention to detail that's, like, so, like, jaw-dropping. Like, every single creature that you see in this movie, like, has an appropriate sound that feels organic and natural. I think that's very, very difficult to do. And that, like, expands out whether it's the kind of DIY surgery scene that happens in this movie or even down to the, the bottle sound, as well, the one I always come back to, as sounds so real that I believe that that either did happen or someone off-air, like in a sound booth somewhere, got hit with a bottle. Because uh, that sound, like, we, we've all heard it before when... when glass clinks against you or hits you or that thud sound it's so powerful it's, it's it's so it's so disturbing because of that but i think you're right i think it's not only just the attention to the detail and we're blessed that you have those documents that you can see the process creatively as it works through but then to get the right people to be the creatures themselves and act as the creatures themselves and then on top of that get the right sound design that matches with it itself is just it's crazy good man absolutely crazy good i am um, i remember like and we talk about like del toro being kind of humble and not pushy and all the rest that's even down to the movie itself the infamous story was that he was told he could get double the money like he had to, he really struggled to get this finance right but the like hollywood said we will give you more we'll give you more than double what you're looking to make this movie just make it in english and he wouldn't do it. He would not compromise on it at all. And not in a dickish way, he just like, it, like he didn't want to, to go down that avenue. He wanted to do it his way. It was his story and he wanted to tell it his way for his audience. And I love that. I think there are too many people out there that compromise the the small things. We, we hear about with people like, like it's what ultimately um, soured Frank Darabont um, in Hollywood was the the idea that he wanted to do the mist in black and white and they told him no 
you know, it's those sort of things where if you compromise in one big artistic kind of move right at the start, that must just, like, every time you're doing something, that must just grate on you. And the idea of, like, fully transposing the language, it's not just transposing the language, it's just different actors need to be involved with it now, and it, it just doesn't have the same impact. Also, it doesn't feel like an American movie. Like, everything about this year, we mentioned even the time period in the setting, feels of 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 kind of Europe, of Spain, of it has that vibe that kind of works its way through and I think it's important to keep that there as well. We talked about the, 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 the kind of the violence on screen, the actual physical um, people violence here. They capture it really well. The war stuff is done once again very, very, very well that almost makes you wonder if Del Toro wanted to do a film, just a pure kind of Franco era film uh, involving the war. I think he'd be really fucking good at it. I don't know what your thoughts are, but like he captures that kinetically really, really, really well. I could easily watch two two hours of that. Yeah. With it with without I'm very I'm this movie you would have to pry from my fucking hands. But <laughs> Yes, if you if you also made or if he made this movie three hours long, yeah, or just a separate, yeah. But and I also agree with the hey, this mo this movie is not American. It, it's too good to be American. Mm -hmm. It's you know, <laughs> um, it's also there. Okay, there's a guy. There's a monster with no eyes except for when they put them in their hands. Mm -hmm. And there's a wooden fawn, and there's pixies, and there's blood sacrifice, and there's a princess of the underworld, and all this stuff. But I don't get jarred into. Wait a second. But if as soon as it's like, hey, Ophelia, this is the captain. He works for Franco. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no. Yeah. Speak Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the other thing I would say as well, on top of that, is that I also get the. It's like the small. It's, it's those small attentions to, to, to detail that work in the. Like the full. It's not just that. It's not used just purely as a background setting. So, like, some movies will use. This, this story is set against the backdrop of. It is set against the backdrop, but it's also integral to Ophelia's escapism. Like, why, like, if you were in this time period, you'd want to be away from it as well. And I think that's a smartly used device that's sometimes clumsily used in Hollywood, but but not here at all. This kind of also feels like, and he's mentioned it himself, he always talked about the, it was going to be the trilogy, and he's only made two to this, to this level anyway, of these kind of Spanish movies against the background of, of kind of, uh, the, the, the kind of Franco regime in, in Spain and you know he, he's too in here on this one but it does feel weirdly like The Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth could exist in the same world which I, I really enjoy and this carryover even though they have completely different palettes I think you know that carryover there is really interesting to see like essentially how it how it works its way onto the screen it's like not just that del toro is a one-trick pony here you've got like several several kind of iterations of the same time frame but kind of through different eyes we see uh, how the world looks during the uh, the war just depending on where you are i think that once again is like like hugely to his credit 
Um, the last thing I kind of want to touch on with, with Pan's Labyrinth, I think, is its legacy. That I think it's it's a movie where, like we mentioned before, it critically very well received. Uh, won three Oscars, I believe, nominated for another three. Did not win Best Foreign Picture, which to me just is like baffling. Um, but but it didn't that year. Uh, but it did win some other stuff. It didn't get. It didn't actually get Del Toro and Oscar. Um, but like for the the people involved with the project, it certainly did. And we did start to. There was a kind of we can do a little bit more fantasy after this, but nothing really. I feel out with. I would suppose it's going to be uh, Hellboy Two, which is basically the American Pan's Labyrinth done in the comic book world. <laughs> where I never he, thought of it like that. Yeah, I mean when you to some visuals. Yeah, you like it's just like it's so so clearly uh this is the comic book much bigger but it almost feels like like the you know we'll give you twice the money to make this movie if you do it in english and he was like that uh, just keep your checkbook and we'll do it on hellboy too because it's more it has much more in common with pan's labyrinth than it does with the first hellboy movie but i've never really seen a fairy tale movie go not even as grand but like like this again, I've certainly seen them. I think um, Osgood Perkins' Hansel and Gretel definitely has, because it's a Grimm's fairy tale, you know, it has that has that vibe. Um, my favourite, well, one of my favourite movies, isn't my favourite movie, but my favourite movie that I saw at Fright Fest this year was Freaks Out, which I still don't think has a proper release date. I've got the European Blu-ray now, but it's incredible. It's, it is Pan's Labyrinth, but done in the circus fucking great um and it's like full of fantasy and it's over the top and it's like just absolutely nuts and bonkers and it's got all the budget in the world the most expensive italian movie ever made um and it looks like a marvel movie is that kind of level of budget but it's set against the the backdrop of the second world war um and you know these these uh these kind of freak show performers who's abilities are actually abilities so they have superpowers essentially um and they're kind of pressed towards bringing down uh oh, like all the reviews are linking in together now actually because we've recorded uh podcasts on this day's night where we're talking about hannibal having an extra finger the character thereafter is a german um a german general who runs a circus tent in Rome I think it is and he has an additional finger in each hand which makes him a superior pianist um, so just everything's just melding into one review but like I, I see movies go down that road but I don't see any go this way like where it toes a, a serious line like Pan's Labyrinth is a serious movie for all its kind of flights of fantasy and, uh, uh, and the fantastical stuff it does it's a very very serious movie do you think can you think of another director out there that could do a movie like this that doesn't have the surname Del Toro? <laughs> well, I think we are no. <laughs> Rob Zombie, thinking, of course. No. I was thinking the closest that came to this, and it was granted it was um it was likened to it quite a bit, is Tigers Are Not Afraid with Elsa Lopez, who did her kind of much more grounded uh, in the Mexican cartel run environment, these kids and the fantasy that follows in that. But I mean, even the creature design is not 
it's not on this level. It's designed to be more kind of real to the world and less fantasy, but I can't think of anyone that does it. I can't think of any directors that do anything like this or anything really like Del Toro has continued to do. Yeah, there's just, just something special about Guillermo Del Toro. And that's easy and sort of, I don't even know. Yeah, it's it's easy to say, but we've touched on it. He still has this childlike glee and, yep. uh, you know, like, yeah, there's just Guillermo Del, del Toro. I, I don't know if, no, not Robert Rodriguez. Because it's a different know. style, isn't it? This is what yeah. I was thinking. Yeah. I was thinking about specifically the way that he does it. I just don't think there are any directors. Because yeah. you can think of it, I can think about it like there's a dozen names that come up when I think of Robert Rodriguez or people that try and copy Robert Rodriguez, but I, I'm not aware of anyone who has successfully managed to do a movie like a Guillermo del Toro movie. Which I think is, yeah. I suppose that's what makes him so special. Um, and eventually everyone will agree. Um, Dern, I have loved this conversation. This is exactly why I loved having guests on for, for season uh, four of Chronicle, is that we get a chance to bounce ideas. Otherwise, it's just me going, this movie's fucking great, I love this, I love this, I love this. But being able to bounce around in the conversation, touch on aspects of the movie whilst also bringing in uh, thoughts and insights that look further afield is the, is the true nature of... Of the of the quality of of Chronicle, um, you have some podcasts out there that people can listen to, and I of course would encourage them to go and check out for sure. Um, I'm assuming, like to me, not that I necessarily fall into the we need to grade these movies, but if I was grading them, it's maximum marks. And I imagine you're in the same boat. All the stars, all the thumbs, <laughs> taking off my shoes for my big toes. Yep, unzipping my fly if I need to. Oh dear. <laughs> It gets well. It's an extra digit there. Um, all the di- all the digits. There we go. Yeah. Um, but like I say, you've got some podcasts out there. Where can people check out your stuff? So they are the VD Clinic Pod is my other. It's it's my. I don't know. I'm I'm a co-host on the VD Clinic Pod. That is usually a movie, sometimes shows, but generally movies paired often with literature of some sort whether it's a book or uh graphic novels and Mm -hmm. things like that that is with my co-host vanessa she is the v i am the d it worked out well that way i replaced (laughs) uh a david you did indeed yeah um and that is vd clinic pod and all the places you look and then my main show that puts out it's been a little bit slower while i've been gathering my strength before midterm season here in America but mm-hmm. I put out at least one episode a month usually it's two and that is politics movies and political movies in various levels of representation and that is Psychosemantic or the Psychosemantic podcast or the Psychosemantic cast it is loved enough to have three names and that is one word and mm-hmm. uh, everywhere except for on Twitter that is at political movies because that's the best I could do. <laughs> and it sort of gets out the people that definitely don't want to listen to the show. Mm-hmm. But it's, yeah, I'm, I know what I'm talking about. And I, it's not like uh, sanctimonious in any way. I think it's the me that you just heard, but with a little bit more, you know, well, this is why the pale man is like Mitch McConnell. <laughs> and 
shit like that. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yes, please go and check it there and stuff. It's always a blast. I've been on a few episodes and I've had a ton of fun and I will be on more in the future. So, um, yeah, if you like this combo, then that's the best way to do it. Um, well, there we are at the end of another episode of Chronicle. And I will be joined again next month as we continue our run through this season, which will probably finish... Uh, I think my last episode will be December this year for season four. And like I've said before, we will see how things go with season five. I imagine if I do come back and do a season five of Chronicle, it's going to be a similar sort of idea. I've really enjoyed having guests on every month and I will continue to do so. So all that's left for me to say is wherever you are, please take care of yourselves. Enjoy this spooky season. Watch some Pan's Labyrinth if you haven't. Um, and if you have, you watched it recently find another Del Toro movie to check out. That dude is as good as the Oscar he has received. This is Duncan Cleese from Chronicle Podcast, and I am signing off. Ignition. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0, liftoff.